Hello, my name is Colin Donnell, and you are listening to Episode 1 of The Run Loop, a weekly discussion about developing and designing iOS and Mac apps. Today's guest is Samuel Goodwin. Samuel has been developing apps for iOS and macOS since 2008. In 2011, he moved to Amsterdam, where he runs his company Roundwall Software, and has also been involved in teaching. Recently, he released an app for formatting JSON called Formatter on the Mac App Store. He's also one of my personal favorite people in the world. Samuel, welcome to the show. Hi, Colin. Thanks for having me, and uh, thanks for the adorable inter- introduction. I appreciate it. You're welcome. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. It's uh, it's uh, the day before King's Day here, so everyone's about to get super drunk for the next like 24 hours. What is King's Day? Uh, it's a celebration of the King of the Netherlands' birthday. So everyone gets the day off from work, and uh, people take to the streets and mostly get drunk. That sounds fun. Yeah, it's kind of fun. It covers the city in broken glass, but I will be at home with loud amplifiers, so it'll be mm-hmm. fine. Good. Um, so it's hard to imagine, but some people listening might not be immediately familiar with you uh, or, you know, your backstory. So maybe we could start off just, uh, I know you went to school for electrical engineering, but that's obviously not what you do now. So maybe you could tell the story of how you got to where you're at now. Yeah, well, uh, hi, I'm Samuel. I went to uh, school for electrical engineering, as Colin said. And um, uh, when it came time to get close to graduation, um, no engineering companies would give me internships because my grades were not super great, probably because I was busy learning to program instead of doing my homework like I was supposed to. And so um, when it got time to try to find jobs... Um, I couldn't get engineering jobs, but I could get programming jobs because conveniently the iPhone came out like right before I graduated and, uh, anyone who knew anything about Objective-C instantly had a job without question. Yeah, that's pretty much what happened for me also is I had been, I had been working at a music store, a guitar center, uh, selling recording equipment for, uh, the year before that and, um, had done some other like sound engineering kind of jobs and, uh, teaching myself to program max for you know that year before and then got an internship like immediately after the iphone sdk was announced like within a month nice nice yeah it worked out pretty conveniently for those of us who were there in the beginning now it's a lot harder to get a job yeah for sure i I feel like the timing was really was really beneficial for for me personally yeah for sure that's partly why i put so much effort into helping people now is um like i was just really lucky when i got started yeah so um Talk about that, helping people now. Like, uh, I know you do Peer Lab, so that's maybe explain what Peer Lab is, how you got that started, and, you know, sure. that whole well, thing. Well, so, um, yeah, back when I was learning to program, we had IRC, and uh, you could go to this chat room, which would be mostly people who did Objective-C for a living, and uh, there were so few people there that you could ask questions, and it might take a while to get a response, but somebody would respond. And even dumb questions like, why doesn't this compile? And the answer is, because you're missing a semicolon. Um, They would uh, would answer that, and they were friendly about it. Mm -hmm. If you go to that same chat room now, it's just like an endless flood of questions and people repeating the same question over and over again because no one's responding to them. And it's not very very friendly. So um, part of being here with Amsterdam, uh, I set up this event called Peer Lab. So every Saturday, you have a place you can go and talk to real people who are actually willing to help you, and you can get some some help. Because especially if you're just starting, 
it can be very hard to understand the nature of the problem enough to even ask a good question about how to get this fixed if you're looking on the internet. Mm -hmm. So if you can just go up to a physical person and say, hey, this, like, why is this not working? What does this mean? Uh, you can get usually a better answer, a better explanation. Yeah, I think especially if you're, you know, if you're working alone a lot or you're learning alone, uh, you know, I found that you can learn a lot on your own and from the internet and stuff, but they're really, it's really great when you actually have other people to like, even if it's not like a mentor, um, you know, like mentor student kind of uh, relationship, if it is more of like a peer relationship, even it is really great to be able to have somebody that you work with and you can just like bounce ideas off of and talk about things and work it out, you know? Yeah, it's totally necessary. Like if I was totally learning on my own back when I was getting started, it would have taken me another three years to figure anything out. Um, like everyone gets stuck on certain things and instead of spending six months being stuck on a thing, you can uh, you know, go and talk to somebody and say, hey, have you been stuck on this thing? Do you know what this is? And get some help. So uh, I set up an event here so you can do that. So for almost four years now, every Saturday, unless it's a holiday, you can go and talk to people and get help. Cool. Yeah. And we'll have, definitely have a link in the show notes for Peer Lab. But um, so you've been doing that for about three and a half years. And I know that you, uh, this is one Peer Lab, but Peer Lab has then spread to other places. Maybe we could talk about how that happened. Yeah. So um, Ash Furrow, I don't know if you've met him, he came mm -hmm. here. Um, and lived here for about a year and came to Peer Lab and liked the idea so much that when he moved back to New York, he got his uh, new employer, Artsy, to volunteer their office space on Saturday for them to have Peer Lab also. Um, like other people have had something like it where, you know, there's a time and a place for people to come and everyone work together. Mm -hmm. But uh, specifically having it called Peer Lab is a thing that I guess I started. And then Ash is continuing that. And like the idea so much that he set up a website so that you can go and and uh, find if if you have one of these in your city where you can look it up. There's about 15 or so on the list now, mm -hmm. and uh, and like a new one just got added in Berlin last week. Mm -hmm. um, there's a couple going on in Italy, and I think uh, somewhere on the West Coast, like in the Pacific Northwest type area. There's at least a couple. Yeah, that's great. Uh, so you so it was your your invention actually, and. Uh, it's actually a great name, I think. I, I love the name. Uh, yeah, when I first proposed the the idea to uh, my friends here, they thought, oh, you know, it's Ask Samuel time. That'll be cool. Like, uh, you know a lot of things. You can mm -hmm. help a lot of people. Um, but I really wanted it to be not so much just come and ask Samuel, although, like, it, it often ends up being you ask Samuel questions. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I wanted it to be this, like, we might help each other. Because even if you've only been doing this for a week, there are things that you have figured out that the person next to you maybe has not figured out yet. Yeah, that makes it that makes a lot of sense. And I'm sure like as you, uh, you know, as people come, people who started off as beginners, uh, you know, maybe were just asking, you know, coming for Ask Samuel time are maybe now beginning to be able to help other people too who weren't originally. Yeah, it's really cool to see. Like I've been doing it long enough now. Some of the people who have been coming have made an app for themselves that accomplishes the thing they wanted to do. Uh, some of them have gotten enough experience working on things that now they're able to go and get a job. And, uh, you know, like you get to see the excitement on someone's face when they get to answer a question instead of only coming to ask questions. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of times people will come and sort of apologize for asking questions. And I say, no, like this is specifically what this is for. Please come. Please ask your questions. Don't hold back. That's fine. That's what we're here for. 
Um, but when they get to come and then they know the answer to someone else's question, there's like that special look of joy on their face. That's really cool to see. Yeah, that's so great. That's that's a really great thing that you did. And it's especially cool, uh, you know, that Ash and other people have, you know, taken it and run with it, you know, so you kind of were able to originate this thing that is now spread kind of all over the world, literally. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty cool to see. Like when he first showed me the the website listings, I was I was pretty impressed. Yeah, that's neat. So, um, so, okay. So backing up a little bit, you have just had your sixth anniversary or going to have your sixth anniversary of being in the Netherlands. Yep. April 1st was my uh, six year anniversary. So what inspired you to move to Amsterdam? Um, so I was working for this company in New York doing, uh, iOS work on a team and I, I didn't especially like working for the company and I, I got to where I didn't want to work for the company, and my experience was just bad enough that not only did I not want to work for that company, I didn't want to work for another company. Um, You know, in New York, there's tons of demand for engineers, and I could be jobless for maybe a week before, you know, I get an offer from three different companies to go work with them. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, like, my, my experience was not great, and so the idea of working for somebody else just seemed like that would be an opportunity for the same thing to happen again. And I didn't want to do that. And so Mike had talked, Mike Lee, who came here and started Amsterdam about a year before this, had talked me into coming to visit and seeing what he had done here. And I liked it so much, I figured I would come here and try to be a part of something and uh, start my own company where then I control my working conditions instead of letting someone else do that. Yeah, that's great. And your company is Roundwall Software. Uh, maybe explain, you know, where did you, where'd you get the name for that? Oh, uh, so round wall is what you call uh, like the walls in a, in a bowl, like to skateboard in. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And I like skateboarding a lot. I feel like skateboarding is one of those things that makes a huge difference in me doing what I do now compared to any other possible outcome in life. Uh-huh. I was a I was a much different person before I learned to skateboard. Um, I learned kind of late. I learned in college, also when I probably should have been doing my homework. And, uh, yeah, this made a huge difference in me being willing to take risks and do things and help people and care about things. So, mm-hmm. uh, it's a big deal to me. Yeah. I mean, do you think that's because it's, you know, it's hard to start learning and kind of pushing through and sort of perseverance and all that or. Yeah. It's, um, like skateboarding is largely a mind game. Like, uh, mm-hmm. people see it and think, oh, physical stuff, you know, I don't have the balance. I don't have the strength, but you get all of those things just from trying to do it. The real tricky part is convincing your brain that uh, that you need to do these things. Like your natural reaction, if you're going to like just roll down a ramp, for example, is to lean backwards and tense up, mm-hmm. and that's exactly the opposite of what you want to do. You want to stay loose and you want to lean forward even to go down the ramp. And uh, training your body to do that is a real mental struggle. And it took me a long time to do some really basic things because I had a lot of fear. Yeah. And a lot of my body resisting everything. That makes a lot of sense. I, um, you know, as I've talked to you about, I've been involved in uh, learning martial arts for about the past almost a year now. And it's a very kind of similar thing where, uh, you know, in the, in the art that I do, Aikido, uh, a lot of times if something doesn't work exactly, you know, the first time you want to do it like a hold or something, your reaction is to get all up in your shoulders and really tense up and try and like overpower the other person. And that's actually exactly the opposite of what you need to do, right? If you loosen, it actually works way less if you try and do that. When if you loosen up, it usually works much better. 
Yeah, you got to loosen up and then let things happen instead of trying to fight it so hard. Yeah. So what kind of what kind of challenges did you find, you know, moving to a new country? I assume you never, you know, I I think I know you never did that before. So, you know, moving to a new country, setting up a business there. Um, you know, what kind of challenges did you face in doing that or was it pretty straightforward? Um, well, it seemed a lot easier at first. Um, Amsterdam is a city where a lot of people speak English. So the fact that I know zero Dutch when I got here was not a big deal. Um, I had Amsterdam here. Part of the, the organization is to help new people who are coming to the city. Uh, so they helped me find a place to stay while I was looking for, you know, a more permanent apartment. Um, and they helped show me around a little bit and explain how things worked in the city. So that part wasn't too bad. Um, and even the immigration process for American citizens is pretty easy to come over here, especially if you're involved in technology. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so initially, uh, I had two major problems. One was that I tried to do the immigration paperwork myself instead of hiring an immigration lawyer like I probably should have. Um, and so for a little while, I was technically not supposed to still be here because mm-hmm. my application was rejected and I kind of ignored that for more than I should have. Mm. Uh, so finally, eventually I did get a lawyer who worked it out. And so now I am a legal resident of the Netherlands for the next several years. So it's okay. Well, that's good. Yeah. Uh, second major problem was, um, college loans. Cause you know, being an American, I have student loans, of course, cause I went to college. Of course. And, and, um, in America, your, your bank is probably set up to automatically pay some monthly amount on these. And so, you know, after college, I didn't think about it. I just, you know, I knew that money was slowly disappearing from my bank account and it was fine. Um, when I came here though, um, these loan collection companies don't understand the fact that people might not live in America. Mm-hmm. They don't know how to dial a, a European phone number to remind you that you need to pay money. And since I had moved my money from my American bank into a new Dutch bank, um, that automatic payment stopped happening. Mm. So it kind of piled up. Yeah, I kind of forgot about it until almost a year later when they finally did get a hold of me and they said, hey, by the way, you've now defaulted on this loan because you've not made any payments on it for so long. That seems unideal. Yeah, so uh, my mom had co-signed on the loan, so they said, you need to come up with like $40,000 right now, or we're going to come after her and take the money from her. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, my family doesn't exactly have $40,000 laying around for random occasions. Yeah. So uh, I, didn't, I didn't want that to happen. Um, it kind of forced my business here into... Uh, originally, I was sort of working as needed and not really trying too hard and mostly just enjoying the city when it's not raining and, and going to do stuff and having mm-hmm. fun. Yeah. And I quickly had to turn it into, no, no, we need to actively run this as a business and take this very seriously and generate some serious revenue now. Mm-hmm. So I had to go look for more serious clients, you know, charge more money, negotiate better rates, um, and I managed to negotiate it down to some lower settlement amount and then actually pull it off by the end of the year. So it worked out in the end, but I was, uh, I was not fun to be around while that was happening. Well, that's fantastic. That seems like it could have been really scary when it was happening, but I'm really glad that you, you know, I actually didn't know that whole story, uh, uh, but I'm, I'm really glad that it, it worked out that way. Yeah, it, um, 
There were lots of opportunities for me to quit and go move in with my parents back in Oklahoma and, and not be here. Mm-hmm. But I really didn't want to do that. And so uh, fortunately, I was able to make it work out because like, uh, I didn't really like any of the other options that were available to me. Yeah, well, I'm really, like I said, I'm really glad that that worked out that way. Um, so, you know, talking about your business more, um, what kind of, you know, so dealing with foreign clients a lot, I guess you're in Amsterdam, so you said mostly people speak English, so that hasn't been a big barrier for you, I guess? Yeah, it's not been too bad. A lot of clients would prefer to deal with developers who speak Dutch because mm-hmm. um, they're Dutch and, you know, of course you want to speak your native language. That makes sense. Um, but um, because there's a severe lack of experienced engineers here, they're kind of forced to deal with me whether they want to or not. Good. So uh, it works out fine. Yeah. Well, that's great. Um, and as far as uh, what kind of tips would you say you have for, you know, I think something when people are running their own business for so long, cause you've been doing it for several years now, which is really impressive. Uh, I think a lot of people, you know, myself included, have found, you know, just staying consistently motivated over that time, you know, is really difficult. And like, you know, that you have to, you know, you're always hunting down clients, you're always having to you know, get yourself up in the morning and go do the work to make the money to do the thing. Uh, you know, what, what kind of tips would you have for somebody maybe who, you know, they're working in a regular jobby job right now, maybe they want to go independent, maybe they, you know, just are at their job and they want to do better there even, uh, you know, be more of a self-starter. What kind of tips would you have, you know, being, having been successful at that for several years now? Um, well, so when I talk to people who want to freelance here, first thing I tell them is one, don't bill hourly. Um, hourly billing is for like plumbing and for accounting and lawyers, things that have more, uh, sort of definition to what they do. A lot of Mm -hmm. what we do is figuring out what to do in the first place. Yeah. And that doesn't really work with like hourly pay. Um, so I don't do that, right? I charge weekly and so it makes scheduling easy. If you want the next 12 weeks, that's cool. Uh-huh. Uh, if you want the next four weeks, whatever, and then I get a client for after that. Um, so don't bill hourly. And uh, you really have to be aggressive about making sure you get paid. Um, a lot of people I talk to, they say, oh, you know, I don't really like talking about money. I'm not so sure about that. You know, what happens when they don't pay? And the answer is you have to remind them that they have contractual obligations to pay you and make sure that happens. Um, I've had a couple clients that I've had to chase down, and I say, look, like, let's not make this a legal issue. You need to pay what this contract says you need to pay. Mm-hmm. You know, I held up my end of the deal. You need to pay yours. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, that's a part that I kind of like because that says, oh, I did work, and now you get to pay me, and I get money now. This is good. Um, but for some reason, a lot of people don't like this. And if you're going to try to do this for yourself and run your own business, you really, you really have to be okay with the fact that, like, no, your job is to, you know, threaten to break kneecaps and make sure you get paid. <laughs> yeah, that makes that 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 makes a lot of sense that, you know, if you're somebody who, you know, is doing a job where you're going to be, you know, providing services for money, uh, that you need to be you need to get over being uncomfortable talking about money. You need to be able to ask for it. Yeah, yeah. Up front you need to be able to talk about it to negotiate. Um, I've often found when I go to negotiate deals with various clients that I probably could have gotten away with asking for more and they would have been okay with that. And that's just money that I don't have, right? That's, uh, that's, uh, my problem. 
that I didn't ask for enough money, right? If I had been better at discussing money at that point, I'd have a little bit more in the savings account right now. Oh man, when I uh, when I you know when I was doing contracting before, I remember whenever you know I would ask a client for you know what I thought was like a high number, right, or what I thought was like a good like starting point, and if they just said yes immediately, then I'm like, oh yeah. no, oh no, yeah, that means you messed I asked up. for way too low. Definitely, yeah. Um, I had it happen such that uh, not only did they say yes right away, but then they counter offered with a little bit more even. Oh, that's 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 which, actually which pretty really fantastic. says I asked for too little. They're like, "Oh, that's all you want? We'll give you a little bit more than that." How's that? That's great. Um, no, that's that's really good. Uh, the other thing you said that I thought that's really smart that I I never did uh, when I was contracting uh, before was um, was charging weekly. So I've done hourly, and like you said, there's a lot of problems with that, right? Um, and if you uh, and I've also done charging on a project basis, and there's a lot of problems with that too because oh, definitely. because you know you say like you know this is going to take a month, this is going to take two months, and we're going to charge this amount for the entire project, which is actually what I've seen companies do the most. You know, a lot of the time is they charge for the project, and then you know if it takes, you know, it's a lot of times when you're doing this kind of work, you're you know, you're trying to estimate how long it's going to take you to do something you've never done before, which is fairly difficult. And so it ends up taking way more. And it usually doesn't end up taking, it can take less. And then I guess you got extra money. Uh, You know, you got a better rate, but it usually doesn't take less with this. I find it usually ends up taking longer than you thought or more work than you thought. Um, So charging weekly seems like a really good idea because it's, um, you know, kind of the best of both worlds. Right. Yeah. Yeah. When you charge uh, for a fixed price, like this much for the whole project, um, that's good for the client because that's convenient for budgeting. They say, oh, we're building a thing. It costs this much. Done, done. Let's all go, you know, have a beer. Um, But uh, for you, yeah, the only way to make sure that you are getting done before the time that you planned is to, you know, estimate for two years for a project or something. Yeah. And nobody really wants to hear it's going to take two years to build an iOS app. So that doesn't really work out so hot. Yeah. Usually, Um, sorry. Yeah. But so most of the clients that I work with, especially, they don't really know what they want up front. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe they even have some designs, but the, you know, like a series of screenshots depicting an app don't really say anything about what the actual app is and what it actually is like to interact with the thing. So a lot of times what happens is once you start to build and you start, even if they do have a lot of planning up front, it's going to turn out that those plans need to be changed, right? And they say, oh, actually, we need to do this differently. We need to rearrange this. And that's how you get into, oh, this two-month project now takes four months and you're getting screwed on the price. Yeah, no, charging you know, charging on a weekly basis just makes all the sense in the world to me. It seems like it's good for you. It's good for them. Uh, you know, because it's really easy for everybody to know what they're expected to do and, you know, keep have everybody kind of be in the loop about how much things are, you know, going to cost going forward based on the most recent information. Yeah, and it's fine. Like when they say, hey, let's build such and such feature, I say, oh, yeah, that's so cool. It's going to take four months or something to, to build mm-hmm. something like that. And they say, oh, yeah, OK, that sounds reasonable. They know that's going to cost roughly this amount of money. And, uh, you know, if they keep changing their mind and want to make things take longer, I say, yeah, that's fine. It's going to take longer, just so you're aware. That's going to cost you more. And they say, okay. Yeah, that yeah, that just makes all the sense in the world. If I, uh, 
if I was ever in that situation again, I, I think I would, I would definitely try and do things that way. Um, so you just made this app. It's called, well, I mean, a few weeks ago now, but recently in the you know, terms of releasing apps, because they take a little while. And it's called Formatter, and it is for formatting JSON. And I always love these kind of app ideas where it's, um, you, know, you know, this is a very simple app, right? You, you, you drop a unformatted uh, blob of JSON, like maybe you got from your you know, API response or whatever in curl or something, onto the thing. And then you get out a pretty printed version of the same thing, right? Am I, am I depicting it correctly? Yeah. Okay. It, it makes a human readable version. So you yeah. can see instead of it all being crammed onto one line without any white space. Yeah. So I, I always love uh, app ideas like that, where it's just like, there's just the simplest thing. And even if not that many people buy it, like it's good for um, exposure, right? It's good just for like street cred, I think, if you know what I mean. And it's good for, um, uh, and, and it's good because, you know, you get to have something out there, which is just wonderful and uh, makes you feel good too. Uh, and I, I usually find though that with these apps, they end up being the really simple things once it takes all the polish of actually making it into a thing that you could give to somebody else and not be, you know, embarrassed by something you want to put on the app store that it actually ends up being way more work than you ever estimated. So maybe, uh, you know, yeah, if, if you think, you know, maybe describe exactly what formatter is, cause I have a very brief synopsis and then also, you know, talk about the challenges of taking a very simple idea like that, but then getting it to actually a sellable product. Yeah, so, um, yeah, it just provides this little window. You can drop your files on, and it'll format them. You can drop it on the doc icon, and it'll format them. Um, it, it includes integration into Xcode, so uh, if you have your JSON files as part of your Xcode project, like I do in my unit tests, um, you can just hit a keyboard shortcut that you assign and then format JSON files without ever, without ever having to think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, part of the difficulty here was that nothing seemed too complicated. These are all relatively simple f functionalities, but um, they're on the Mac, which means you have to read through documentation that maybe hasn't been updated since like 2002 for certain mm -hmm. things. Um, like the, the Xcode plugin is relatively recent, so that was pretty clear. Here's what to do. But even then, there were certain gotcha cases in there where technically this is what you're supposed to do, but if you do this wrong in a certain way, it'll just make your plugin crash. And since it's running in Xcode, there's not a lot of visibility into the fact that your plugin crashed and why it crashed. You just hit a button and nothing happens. Yeah. Um, so that took a while to debug. There was, there was a problem with that for several weeks that I had to work out. Um, and even even simple things like dropping onto the dock icon um, that requires reading documentation that yeah hasn't been updated since like you know, OS ten point four or something. Yeah, and what did you find? Uh, you know, just talking about developing uh, for the Mac versus uh, you know I'm going to guess that most of our listeners uh, are probably more familiar with with you know developing for iOS. There's more people who make iOS apps. I know both you and I have made Mac apps and iOS apps because uh, we both got started on the Mac. Uh, so maybe talk a little bit about the differences between the two. Um, yeah, the, mostly the difference that I ran into is this documentation issue. Um, mm -hmm. the, the app doesn't have a ton of UI, so obviously there are huge differences in the way Mac UI works versus iOS UI. Um, and everyone complains about how the OS X version is, is so much older and uh, doesn't do quite the, the modern, nicer things that iOS does in a lot of cases. But 
for this app, there's just a little target window as far as UI goes. So mostly it was just this, um, you know, if you want to get dropping on the Diecock onto work, uh, where's the documentation for that, trying to find it and understand it. It's definitely an Objective-C, and the app was written in Swift because, you know, why not? Yeah. Um, so you had to figure out what that means and how to do that in Swift in a way that it works. Um, and, yeah, like, and especially the Xcode plugin pieces, like the documentation is newer, but then not quite as complete. And so there are some weird edge cases they don't talk about, and you just have to know to avoid. Hmm. No, that's interesting, uh, the documentation issues. This seems like a good point to take a quick break to talk about how listeners can support the show. Um, so what I've done is I've set up a Patreon. And if you go to patreon.com slash Colin Donnell, that's my whole name at Patreon, uh, you can actually help by pledging as little as $1 a month. Uh, you can pledge more, and that'd be really helpful, but you can get started with as little as $1 a month. What that money does is going to help me buy equipment, it's going to help me dedicate more time to the show, and also it's going to help me fund more content in the future. This is the first show I'm doing uh, right now, and I, I don't know when I'm going to do more, but I do want to do more. Uh, and... That's so that's going to be really helpful. If you donate one dollar more, the gift that you receive is you get my sincere gratitude, which is you know uh, very valuable. But if you donate a little more, I've created a special tier at fifty dollars a month for up to five people, and what you're going to get is uh, one hour of my time a month for a design or code review, which I think has got to be one of the cheapest ways to hire a competent iOS developer for an hour. Uh, so if you like what you're hearing, please consider checking out the Patreon page, see if that's something you'd be interested in. And also there will be a link to the, there'll be a link in the show notes at, uh, the runloop.com slash one. Okay. So you've been talking to me a lot about this new project you're working on, which is a command line text editor that you're writing in Swift. Yes. It's, um, it's not really for a uh, product as in a thing to sell, but it is a thing as in I want to say that I wrote it and see if I can make it work and then maybe write a bunch of blog posts explaining the, the way it works. Um, we're basically um, this guy, the guy who made Redis, if you're familiar, it's a database-y technology. Mm -hmm. um, the guy that wrote it like does C all day long for, for a living and loves the crap out of it. And so he thought for fun one weekend, oh, let me write a text editor in C. Uh, that's much very similar to Nano, which is a popular editor you'll find on your server if you ever have to log into a server somewhere and you don't want to use Vim. Nano is this convenient option that isn't too complicated. Um, but so he wrote this, um, his own version, and published the code for it. And then somebody else came along and published a tutorial based on it to lead you through the process of writing the editor that he wrote. And so I've been going through the same tutorial only in Swift, where um, it's, it's probably the squirreliest parts of Swift because it's the parts that are interfacing with C APIs. Mm -hmm. Like you're, you're making POSIX calls for, for reading from files and writing to disk and, and modifying the behavior of the terminal even. Oh, because, wow. Um, yeah, like your typical command line program just takes input from standard input and mm -hmm. produces output on standard output. 
Um, so, you know, you've maybe made one of those quiz games before where you prompt for a question and somebody types in the answer and then they tell you whether you're correct or not or something. Um, but this, um, this doesn't work when you're trying to build a text editor because what you need is basically to intercept every character typed into the terminal and not just as a line, like get characters until you get to a new line and read that whole line at once. You want to read each individual character as it's being typed. Mm-hmm. Um, because there might be typing a keyboard shortcut or something. And if I type enter, for example, you don't want to put enter into the text file. You want to actually move the cursor to the next line and, and you know, make that do something in your editor. Yeah, and I imagine uh, dealing with uh, like scrolling and other things, it seems like there's a whole lot of challenges that you'd have to deal with here. Yeah, it gets pretty squirrely. Um, fortunately, the C version of this is only about a thousand lines of code. Mm-hmm. Um, so so far, my Swift version is about five or six hundred lines of code. I haven't gotten quite to the part where you implement syntax highlighting. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, for now, like it, it mostly works. It has some weird uh, flickering behavior that I haven't figured out. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other fun part is, uh, like, you're doing this with uh, um, Swift, the Swift Package Manager, not through Xcode. Oh, okay. Which means you don't have Xcode for things like using the debugger. Mm-hmm. So you also, I also had to learn about how to access LLDB directly from the command line, which gets especially tricky when you're trying to use LLB, LLDB from the c- command line to debug a program which runs in the command line and modifies the crap out of the behavior of the terminal while the debugger is running to try to debug the program. Yeah, that sounds very, that sounds, like you said, squirrely. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fun. Um, you will often stare at a thing that's making it crash for like a couple hours. But once yeah. you get it to work, it's this very satisfying feeling of like, uh, this was really, really complicated and I got it to figure it out. Yeah, it sounds like a, um, it sounds like a great learning experience. So, uh, so are you kind of, so it sounds like you have this C, you know, program that was written that you're kind of basing yours off of, right? So are you sort of directly translating that or are you making it more, you know, uh, Swifty with classes and, you know, um, you know, things that are not available in C? Are you really taking advantage of Swift or right now is it more of like a direct translation? Yeah, there are certain things like, um, for example, C, this, this C editor has no concept of things like Unicode because that requires accessing different C libraries for mm-hmm. reading in Unicode input, you know, if you want to type emojis in your text file. Um, where Swift doesn't care. Um, Swift strings natively support Unicode. You know, Swift characters natively support Unicode. Um, So in a bunch of places, I've been replacing the C things with the Swift equivalent. Mm -hmm. Um, In places where I knew it would definitely work. And I played around with a bunch of cases, and there are some places where it doesn't actually make anything better. You think, oh, well, like, what if this was a struct here instead of some random functions? Or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what if I did this this way? And in a lot of cases, it does not work the way you would expect it to. And you end up just going back to the, you know, something way more similar to the C way. But it's fun to have something to play with. And you can say, oh, maybe I can Swiftize this a little bit more. Yeah, that seems like just such a great learning experience. Uh you know, for, for you to do, because it's just so much different than the kind of app, you know, we normally get to work on, on, you know, iOS or Mac OS, uh, you know, developing kind of GUI apps that talk to a web service. It's like, you know, literally sort of the opposite of that almost. Yeah, back when I was learning Objective-C, um, that was a time where you could make things like an RSS reader or a text editor or an IRC client, 
and and you could make one of those and even you could sell it for 40 bucks a piece on the Mac and people would buy it. But nowadays, um, like almost everything I've been asked to build for clients is some kind of social networking derivative something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so no, no opportunities for processing thousands of RSS feeds in one app. Um, no opportunities for, for handling the IRC protocol and writing it yourself, even though I got that to work sometime in the, uh, in the past. Um, so it was fun to like go back to doing the sort of thing that would have been interesting commercially even mm-hmm. back when I started working on it. Yeah, it's it's funny, uh, you know, I'm sure you've seen this too, is that, you know, when we started writing iOS apps, um, uh, I feel like obviously a lot of things were sort of a front end for a, um, you know, web service back then even. But I feel like now almost every app I've written in the past several years, it's just, you know, it's it's basically just a front end for a web service, for an API. Uh, you know, where I feel like in 2008, 2009, there were a lot more of the things I was working on were, uh, you know, kind of their own standalone little thing that sure. just sort of lived on the phone. Yeah, that's part of why I wrote Formatter for the Mac also, is to have something that did not depend on a web service. Like, there, there still is room for useful programs to run on your phone and your computer that don't need the internet in order to function. Um, and yeah, my client work has me doing plenty of things that depend on some web server to do anything interesting. So mm-hmm. it was fun to, it's good to have some side projects that don't need a web server to function. Yeah, well, that's a really cool project. And, um, so I assume you're going to be blogging about that at your website, roundwallsoftware.com. That is correct. Cool. So we'll have show note, a link in the show notes to your company page so people can check that out. Okay. So the last thing I sort of have on my list here is that you and I were both in Japan recently. Yes, we were. It was super fun. It was super fun. Uh, we only got to spend about you know two and a half days there together, and then I stayed a little longer after you left, and you were there a little bit before I got there. So let's start right. by talking about uh, the stuff you did before I got there, which was you went to this uh, Tri-Swift conference in Tokyo. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Natasha the Robot puts on this conference now. Um, this was the second time she's done it in Tokyo where she gets Japanese people and foreign people from outside of Japan together to talk about iOS together. And um, she really puts on a good conference and does things like she hires some of the best translators you can get in the city. Mm-hmm. So if someone is giving a talk and they're speaking in English, you can put this thing in your ear and hear the Japanese translator in the back oh, wow! as fast as they can to give you the Japanese equivalent of what they're saying. Like the U.M.? Um, yeah, yeah. That's, it's like you're so in a cool. UN meeting, except for instead of discussing, you know, nuclear weapon storage, we're discussing, uh, you know, structs and classes and stuff. That's so neat. Wow. Um, so the conference was really good. Uh, lots of interesting talks, lots of interesting discussion after the talks. And I met some some pretty cool people, you know, going to dinner and stuff after mm-hmm. the conference each day. Uh, talked to, sat down and talked to the guy who runs this conference in Australia and had a lot of discussion with him and a lot of other people. There was lots of discussion about diversity at conferences and stuff because, uh, you know, like many conferences, there were quite a few dudes there. Yeah, that um, happens. Yeah, it's um, it's pretty pretty easy to make that happen. Yeah. Uh, um, so, yeah, there was lots of discussion there. And then with some of the people from the conference, we went on a sort of shopping excursion and went to various department stores. And even, turns out in Tokyo, there's a whole part of the city that's just uh, cooking supplies and kitchenware. 
Um, really? And inside that are entire stores that just sell knives, like big giant knives, really tiny knives, all kinds of different makes and shapes and sizes. Um, so we asked a lot of questions about knives from people who were a little bit confused about why we were asking so many questions. Nice. And then we, we bought a couple. I brought home a pretty sweet knife that I, I'm, I'm a big fan of. I've been trying to cook recently, so having a fancy knife is a, a good motivator for cooking. I've seen some of that, I think, on your Instagram or Twitter somewhere. Yeah, I like to uh, document proof that I can, in fact, cook things, because for some reason people assume that I can't. No, that's good. I love cooking, too. Yeah, it's fun. Um, but so we went and got this, and then uh, I also went to, I think, about 15 different guitar shops uh, with the goal of bringing home something made in Japan that I yeah. could take home with me and play. Uh, and in the end, I, I found something. It was really nice, made by FGN, which is a factory that used to make like um, Fender copies and stuff back when Fender didn't have a factory in America for a little while, and they licensed Japan to make them for them. Yeah, I, I saw it. It's a pretty sweet guitar. Yeah, it's a semi-hollow. They call it an MSAHP or something. They don't really like giving names that are easy to say out loud, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to think. It sort of looks like, uh, you know, for listeners who are familiar with guitars, uh, I think it's a certain Gibson guitar that it sort of looks like a kind of smaller version of a little bit. Yeah, it's like if you took a 335 and you said our average population is a lot smaller than Americans. Yeah. So let's make it a little bit smaller so it's a little bit easier to reach around because the 335 has kind of a fat waist to it. Yeah, it's just kind of like a little slimmer version of one. Yeah, they just wanted to make it a little bit easier to play for people who are maybe not so huge. Yeah, no, I remember you. Yeah, I remember you showed it to me while we were there. It was really we played it out. Out. Uh, we actually. Uh, so the first night that I got there, you and I, uh, you had already found a capsule hotel, which was less scary than I thought it would be because I was picturing like the ones you see on TV from the '90s that look like literally like they lock you into a plastic tube. And uh, the capsule we stayed in was actually really nice. But uh, the, uh, the, the point of that was, you, sh- you know, we, we sat outside the capsule and you showed me your guitar. It was pretty cool. Yeah, it was nice. The, um, the capsule is a really cheap way to go if you're traveling by yourself. Um, and since we only had like a day or two overlap, it wasn't too bad. But um, if we were traveling the whole time together, it might have not been the best choice. Yeah. If, yeah. 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 If we were together. My... Sorry. Sorry. Uh, but being there, being there by myself the first days that I was there before you got there, it was super convenient. Um, it was pretty cheap. It was about 35 bucks a night because I booked ahead of time. And uh, you lock up your stuff over here. They give you a bed, uh, a, a bath towel and a, and a robe here. And you take a shower and go climb into your thing and play with your phone until you fall asleep. It was pretty nice. Yeah, actually, the uh, this is going to sound kind of random, I guess, but actually it was funny the the bathroom at this place and all of that like you know sort of um stuff was uh you know where you get cleaned up and whatever it was like nicer than most hotels i've ever stayed at in the united states it was actually really really nice yeah they tried really hard to keep it clean even though there's a lot of people using the same space yeah no i I actually really liked it um so one of the things i was you know the most freaked out about when I landed in Japan and, you know, pretty quickly got over, but I was texting you frantically because I could not figure out where to go or what to do. And I was afraid I was going to, uh, you know, get trapped in, uh, somewhere and be on the wrong side of Japan and not even in Tokyo anymore. It's going to be terrible. I'd never find you. 
uh, was uh, the transit system. Yeah, so, that was fun. Yeah, how did you find the transit system the first time you you, you had to ride on it? Um, well, so I went to the same conference last year, so my introduction was already a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was uh, a little bit tricky. There's quite a bit of English signage, but you do have to kind of know where to look for it in some cases, where some signs are only in Japanese and then some signs are also in English. Um, and also the part of the tricky part about the subway s- system is that there are several different companies that run different parts of the subway system. Yes. So, yeah, you'll look at a map trying to find how you get from this station to the other station, and you know there's a way to do it because maybe you even did it the day before. But if you're looking at the wrong map, you'll see some other companies' lines that don't go to that destination, and then you'll be very confused. Um, But fortunately, I found that especially um, in the bigger stations, like when you first get off of the train coming in from the airport or something, um, everyone is pretty friendly. You can ask for information. And at one point, they had to send me to a different desk to talk to somebody who knew English. Um, But when I got to that person, that person said, yeah, you need to take this one, and here's how you get the ticket for this, and get on this train here, and get off here, and then you'll be at the place you're trying to go. Yeah, so I... um... I found it a little confusing, like the first couple days was pretty confusing. And I think the reason, you know, the transit system that is, and I think the reason uh, it was, was kind of what you were talking about is different, you know, so here in, you know, here in San Francisco, and I assume it's the same in most places, we have, uh, well, we actually have two, but it's, there's only two and they don't, they go a lot of the same places. We have Muni and BART, right? Uh but they all have, you know, they have a lot of the same stations. It's not hard to go between. You never have to, like, leave one station and then go into an entirely new station, you know, or anything like that. And in Tokyo, a lot of times that is kind of how it works, right? Like, you have to, like, like this line is run by a different company. So the entrance to go to that line is, like, you leave, you go out one door and come in a different door in a different place or go downstairs somewhere else. And now you're, you know, to go to make that transfer, which was a little bit scary the first few times you do it. Yeah, it gets a little weird. Fortunately, also, as a tourist, you can get by a lot um, by only using just the one line, the Yamanote line, which makes a big circle around like the main part of the city. Yeah. Um, so you can get to quite a bit by just riding that and just ignoring every other line in the city. Yeah, if you're mostly sticking to that like kind of central loop, uh, you know, uh, like... I was, you were staying in um, Shibuya and I was staying in Shinjuku. And so we were only a couple of stops apart. And also on that line, there's, uh, you know, Harajuku and, um, you know, a couple others that are, you know, very tourist friendly kinds of things that people want to do when they go there. Uh, and as long as you were staying in that area, you could pretty much just stay on that one line and it just made a big loop. And then if you wanted to get, uh, you know, out to a uh, different area, right, you usually needed to do something else, but it wasn't too bad. And after, I, I guess my tip, would, my, I guess my, my only tip would just be that it's not as scary as it seems. And after like the first day or two, it'll seem really scary and like you're going to get lost everywhere. And then you, I don't know, something happens and it just isn't, just does some, it just doesn't feel that way anymore and it's fine now. Yeah, I think the, the important part is just to make it to where you don't need to be anywhere at a specific time on the first day that you get there. You know, maybe don't schedule an important business meeting for like 8 a.m. when you arrive at 6 a.m. from the airport and then you'll be fine. You know, you give yourself a day to figure out where stuff is and then go do whatever you need to do. And it's not so bad. 
Yeah, and I was sh- I was I was there purely for uh, you know, vacationing and doing nerd stuff. So, uh for me it was very um so me it was very easy not to have a schedule. I just kind of woke up when I wanted to get up and I went and did things. Um so I'm trying to think of what we did together. I know one thing we did together was we found a really great uh, you know, kind of whiskey bar that was pretty fun. <laughs> Chatter really Oh yeah, that uh, was cool. Yeah, I actually went back there once. Uh so we found this if you're ever if you're ever in Shibuya, there's a really great uh uh kind of whiskey bar. Uh they have other things too, but whiskey seems like kind of their main thing called a uh, Music Bar 45, which is just fantastic and the guy who uh the guy who runs it is fantastic also. Um, so I don't know, culturally, like what, what were some of the, what, or just what were some of your things that you liked in Japan? Uh, just about generally being in Japan, it's a place where, um, it's generally a lot cleaner, you know, uh, I mean, it's a city and there's a ton of people moving through it. So it's only, it can only be so clean. It's clean for but, a uh, city for sure. Yeah. I mean, compared to here in Amsterdam where people just kind of leave garbage everywhere and there's broken glass on my sidewalk, like all the time, mm-hmm. uh, it was pretty nice. And, uh, you know, you could walk and you didn't really worry about anyone running into you or running over you in any way. Um, even in crowded places, you know, you just kind of say, I'm generally going this way. There's a bunch of people in front of me going that way. I'll just kind of go with the flow like you're a fish in some water, and it was fine. Yeah, and also I know the other thing you really loved was the uh, was like the food and the especially the French bakeries that seem to be just literally everywhere in Tokyo, right? Oh, they yeah. have all these really amazing looking. I'm uh, I'm vegan, so I can't usually uh, eat those things. There was actually some really good vegan food in Tokyo. Uh, and if anybody listening is interested in vegan food in Tokyo, uh, you know, send me a message on Twitter and I'm happy to point you in the right direction. But um, uh, but the thing that's probably more appealing to a lot of people was, uh, yeah, these French bakeries. I went in, you know, one or two with you that looked really amazing. Yeah, I went actively looking for bad food in the city. Um, like I, I went looking for cheap food. I went looking for places that did not look like they'd be that great and tried to eat there. And even there, it was good. Um, there were like, I went to so many bakeries and there was one bakery that had mediocre croissants. Mm-hmm. Um, every other place had super tasty things. I'm a big fan of uh, melon pan, which is uh, bread that's vaguely shaped like a melon, even though mm-hmm. it doesn't have any melon cooked in it at all. And, oh, it's so good. I miss it. And we don't have any of that here. And it's very disappointing. Yeah. That, that was also a mediocre croissant to somebody who lives in Amsterdam now, though. That was probably still better than any croissant you could ever get in the United States, I bet. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. Um, maybe. Yeah, um, I care a lot about my bread. Like, here we hmm. can't get donuts. Um, like, there's no place that sells a decent donut. We just recently got Dunkin' Donuts. They opened mm-hmm. up a location here. And basically, they go to the same factory to get their donuts made that every other crappy bakery in the city does. Mm -hmm. And so it's the same crappy donuts. Like, you Mm. go in thinking, well, surely Dunkin' Donuts, they're not amazing, but they're at least a good standard of donut. An American donut. Yeah, it's a good good starting point where, like, any other place is just better than that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're here. No, even that place is terrible, and it's not worth going. It's very disappointing. Yeah, Yeah, Tokyo actually has... uh, they have two different places. Uh, one may not have opened yet, but I know that Camden's Blue Star uh, Donuts uh, is from Portland, Oregon, and they opened in. Uh, they opened there. I think it's in Shinjuku Station, maybe Shibuya. 
Uh, and they are they they have a few locations now there, and th- they're amazing. They also have a place called uh, Mister Donut, which is not vegan, oh, but looks yes. really but looks really good. And I've heard people say is really good. Delicious, um, delicious Mister Donut. I went two times in one night to Mister Donut. <laughs> we uh, we passed it on the way to an event, and I mm-hmm. said, "Everyone, stop! I need to go get a donut." And then on the way back, I said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Hold on! This place is still open. I need another donut." They are they are and open would, rather late a lot of the time. It would. It was so good. It made my. It made me so happy. Yeah, and then the other thing is, uh, Voodoo Donuts from Portland is now also going to be opening there too. Oh, that'll be fun. Yeah, yeah. I had donuts almost every day that I was there. It was pretty much the most wonderful thing ever. Yeah, they're pretty good. They're pretty good at food in Tokyo. I I, I agree. Uh, all all the food I had there was pretty much amazing. I also. Uh, the the only the other thing I wanted to uh, shout out was you and I went to uh, Akihabara one day. Oh yeah, that briefly, and then I went back there again later because you know we I was pretty tired. It was like my second day there, so I was still pretty jet lagged when we went. And I went back, and Akihabara was amazing. Uh, all of the you know if you like video games or anime or you know any of that kind of stuff, there's just so much of it there, and it's 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 really something to see. Yeah, it's pretty sweet. Like even. DIY stuff like there are whole stores where all they sell are LEDs or this shop here like all they sell is resistors and you can get any kind of resistor you can think of or like at this one store they sell metal enclosures where they'll laser cut the holes that you need in the side so you need maybe an output for power and you need some switches on the top of your box or whatever and they'll just laser cut that for you and say here you go here's exactly what you needed. Yeah, it's really, really, really cool. I, I, I really love Tokyo. I thought it was uh, amazing. I, def- I want to go back very soon. Um, all right, so, uh, you know, we're coming up on, you know, 50 minutes, an hour here. So I think this is probably a pretty good place to wrap up. Uh, I'd like to, you know, Samuel, thank you very much for being my first guest on The Run Loop. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thanks. So uh, how can people find you? Find out what you've done. Find out what you're working on next. Um, well, I'm on Twitter at uh, Samuel Goodwin, all one word. And uh, my website is roundwallsoftware.com. That's awesome. Uh, and you can, you can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Colin Donnell. That's uh, two L's in Colin, my whole name. Uh, you can also follow The Run Loop on Twitter at twitter.com slash The Run Loop. And uh, links for all of these things will be in the show notes. So thank you so much for listening to the first episode uh, of The Run Loop. Thank you very much. Yay. Yay. Yeah, there are a lot of L's and N's in your name. It's fun. That's true. There are a lot of L's and N's in my name. Sometimes I just type L's and N's until the computer understands. They're like, oh, you mean Colin? And I'm like, yeah. Perfect.